and we're back to complete our whirlwind tour through the episodes released in 2021 and 2022. It was our first birthday this September, so we're celebrating by summarizing the year of episodes we've had. Whether it's a reminder of what was said, or if it entices you to listen to ones you've missed, listen ahead to get these snippet summaries. Before we start, remember again that we have a mailing list which you can sign up to join on the Micromail web websites, and we only ever send emails out when there's new content available. So this is either the form of a new episode that's been released or a new storyboard that's available. These storyboards are a really great pocket summary, so a great way to access them is by joining the mailing list. Micromail is also pretty active on social media, so follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or even Facebook. So in this episode, we're going to cover the following themes, diagnostics, pathogens, mythbusters, and antimicrobials. Let's start off on the diagnostic front. Our first diagnostic episode was, is this culture a contaminant? And that was episode four. It's such a common question asked by clinicians to microbiologists. And Dr. Yogendri Ramsamy very nicely talked us through the difference between commensals, contaminants, and colonizers in clinical specimens. Okay, so when, as far as commensals are concerned, um, commensals are found in areas of the body such as the skin, the mouth, and the gastrointestinal tract. And examples on the skin refer to those such as Staphylococcus epidermidis. Contaminants, on the other hand, are organisms that get into a specimen. Sometimes these are commensals, and sometimes they are from the environment. And another example of that is also Staph epidermidis from the skin itself. Colonizers refer to microorganisms, including the pathogenic ones that are present at a body site, for example, on the skin, the mouth, the intestines, or the airway. These microorganisms are really doing no harm and are not causing any symptoms of infection. The person colonized is also called a carrier. For example, the skin is normally colonized by coagulase negative staphylococci and can also be colonized by pathogenic Staphylococcus aureus. Colonization occurs in some 30% of the population with regard to this, and whilst the microorganisms cause no harm if they remain on intact skin, if they transfer to another site, perhaps in an open area such as a wound or another person, it can cause an infection. In episode five, I gave you five quick tips on understanding the microbiology MCNS report. One of the important concepts to understand is that of selective reporting, which I explain here. Tip two, selective reporting. Many microbiology laboratories practice selective reporting. This means that a large panel of antibiotics are tested per pathogen, but only a selected few are reported to the clinician dependent on the site of infection, resistance mechanisms detected, and other clinical factors. If the antibiotic your patient is on does not appear on the report, call the microbiologist to discuss. Tip three, again, on the discussion of selective reporting. If antibiotics are reported for a particular pathogen, this does not mean that the pathogen isolated is clinically significant and needs to be treated. That is a clinical decision to make. Again, call the microbiologist, your infectious diseases physician, 
or a member of your local antimicrobial stewardship team to discuss the patient and decide if the patient requires an antimicrobial or not. Another important concept is understanding the patient's report is knowing what an MIC is and how best to use it. It was a really great chat to Dr. Warren Lohman in episode 16, What's in an MIC? Here, Warren also talked us through some tips when reading MICs on reports. Yeah, sure. I think that this is this is the challenge we face. I'm proposing more information because more information, as I said, allows us to make more informed decisions. But I think I think the first first and foremost important thing is to consider that when you see antibiotics on a report and they all even so they're on a MIC, so you just have S's and R's. If they have a full list of S's. Do not consider all S's as equal. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, they, they're not all equal. They might all be reported as susceptible. But for the particular um, infection that you are dealing with, with, a, with that particular bug, there is a best choice uh, antimicrobial. And, and really, that's, that's what the aim should be. How do I choose the best choice for my patient? Um, and, and here the pharmacokinetics is important, um, knowing where drugs distribute, how I'm going to get the most drug to the site of infection, um, knowing the type of bug that you're dealing with and how susceptible it may well be. It might just be an S there, but if you know some background about uh, there are certain drug bug combinations where you just know that the bug is going to be exquisitely susceptible. Mm. Um, then you know your likelihood of achieving those pharmacodynamic targets is, is greatly um, uh, improved mm. um, and your chances of the, and thereby your chances of clinical success are improved. Uh, I think that would be my, my first and foremost tip. Uh, I think um, also don't be lulled into the, the thinking that the lowest MIC is, is always the best. It doesn't, doesn't really work like that. You cannot compare one drug to another necessarily um, as MIC distributions vary considerably yeah. according to drug bug combination. So it's actually one has to, it's, it's more related to what is the wild type of, for that particular um, uh, bug um, in relation to, to, to the particular drug. So don't just look at an MIC and think, oh, well, this is the lowest one. That's, that's necessarily the best. It's not always the case. Yeah. Uh, I think if, you, if you're considering using a drug based on the MIC reported, then always think about what uh, that PKPD target for that drug is and how you intend using that MIC to optimize your dosing regimen to hopefully achieve that target because you, there, is, there is dosing associated uh, with our clinical breakpoints. I think that's another important uh, thing to know because those, those particular doses are aimed at achieving the pharmacological target um, and in essence will allow us to achieve the, 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 the PKPD target for the, that, that particular drug bug. Um, and then lastly, if possible, and yeah, yes, you would probably need help, uh, Vin, as you said, from your, your friendly microbiologist. You, 
you should try choose an antibiotic where the MIC is, is below the ECOF. And sometimes that's well known for certain drug by combination, sometimes not so well known. But if you have an MIC, um, it's that information is, is easily, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's easily um, garnered and, and you can find it out quite easily. Maybe like you say, with a bit of help yeah. from some friends. <laughs> There's a ton of important concepts in that episode. So if you missed that one, make sure to go back and take a listen. In the diagnostics theme, we also covered rapid molecular diagnostics in episode 17, and specifically spoke to Dr. Mohammed Said about the do's and don'ts of using them. Ah, the question is which one to choose? So many important do's and so many important don'ts. Well, I think this is a really critical one. And then the last don't here is do not use the test to monitor response to treatment. Yes. So, uh, you know, these rapid molecular tests um, are, cap- you know, be- they're so sensitive that they're capable of detecting minute quantities of nucleic acids. Yes. And it may even pick up uh, DNA from uh, non-viable or dead organisms. Mm. Uh, so th- these tests may remain positive for weeks or months, and uh, some have been shown to stay positive even after a year or more uh, of, of testing. Yeah. So therefore, as you can imagine, they, they, they cannot be used to monitor your response to treatment. Uh, using it in this fashion, you know, it's just going to be wasting valuable resources without having any impact on the patient management. Yeah, absolutely. We also had a great episode with Dr. Yesho Latama Habir about Group A streptococci and learned quite a few pearls about managing these infections appropriately. She told us about the antibiotics typically tested against Group A streptococci isolates and which ones are used to treat common Group A strep infections. Yes, so gas uh, Group A strep is extremely susceptible to penicillin. So in the laboratory, we would usually test penicillin, erythromycin, and clindamycin. And just I just want everyone to remember that uh, penicillin susceptibility means that the organism is susceptible to all beta-lactams. So we don't usually test those in the laboratory. Yes. And similarly, we use erythromycin results as a surrogate for all macrolides. So although uh, penicillin resistance has not been reported, there are some isolates that are resistant to clindamycin and macrolides. So it's very important that we test these, especially if we are going to use them for therapy. So uh, for pharyngitis, um, we use um, benzathine, uh, penicillin, or phenoxymethyl penicillin or PenVK, or if there's penicillin allergy, we would use a macrolide like azithromycin. Okay. So when it comes to skin and soft tissue infection like impetigo or cellulitis, then the empiric therapy here would be a first-generation cephalosporin like cephalexin, or if there's penicillin allergy, then we could go for a macrolide like azithromycin. So here, the reason we don't use penicillin empirically is that uh, a number of um, infections may be caused by Staphylococcus aureus. So if we're treating empirically, we need to cover for this. Of course, uh, a sample is taken and group A strep is isolated, then we can uh, de-escalate to penicillin. 
An absolutely fantastic chat was had with Professor Nilesh Govinder about all the amazing updates in the diagnosis and management of cryptococcal meningitis in episode 19. Nilesh told us about some of the updates we can expect from cryptococcal diagnostics and management in the coming years. Um, so certainly in low and middle income countries, I think that you know the main issue is really access rather than altering management regimens any further. Yes. You know, Ambition was the largest trial of crypto meningitis and took years to complete. So I don't expect that we'll see any major data for crypto meningitis for some time to come. Um, it would really be nice to aim for, you know, mortality rates below 20%, mm. as is seen in high-income countries. But that's not going to be achieved by tweaking induction treatment alone. Mm. What you need to do is you need to ensure that people are diagnosed with HIV at much earlier time points so they don't go on to develop advanced HIV disease. Yes. Um, Cryptoantigen screening is really important because that allows us to diagnose cryptococcal disease at an earlier time point so that you know we can actually intervene before meningitis occurs. Um, other important interventions are optimal antiretroviral treatment timing. Um, large clinical trials have shown us that um, with cryptomeningitis, you, you shouldn't start um, or restart effective ART um, in, you know, too early. Right. Uh, one needs to wait four to six weeks before before ART is initiated or reinitiated. Yes. And other important management um, strategies are managing raised intracranial pressure. A large proportion of people with cryptomeningitis will have raised intracranial pressure and will need um, repeated therapeutic lumbar punctures. Um, and also, of course, once patients are discharged from hospital, you need to ensure that they remain adherent to long-term antifungal maintenance treatment. They need to adhere to antiretroviral treatment. So, you know, it's it's not just about tweaking induction treatment, yeah. um, although that is important. So a couple of other things. Um, there are some novel agents in clinical trials at the moment. Just as an example, the ENACT trial, um, I think is in phase one or phase two. Um, I'm now looking at an oral formulation of amphotericin B. There also are some other novel agents um, which have anti-cryptococcal activity, for example, manager picks. And we're also doing some work on cryptococcal antigenemia, which is of course a distinct uh, clinical entity to cryptomeningitis. Uh, we know that the mortality among people with antigenemia is still around 20 to 30% with fluconazole monotherapy, and people die of crypto meningitis even while they're on treatment um, with fluconazole. So there are some ongoing trials to opt to, to look at optimal um, treatment for crypto antigenemia. Uh, there are two trials ongoing: the EFFECT trial, mm -hmm. which is looking at a combination of fluconazole and flucytosine versus fluconazole alone for people with antigenia. And then there's the Acacia trial, which is a looking at um, 
single high-dose liposomal amphotericin B plus fluconazole versus fluconazole alone for people with antigenemia. In three of our episodes, the focus was purely on antimicrobials and antimicrobial stewardship. We kicked this off last year with an episode that coincided with World Antibiotic Awareness Week 2021, where Sonia Coleman spoke to us about antimicrobial stewardship in general. She told us about some of the challenges faced in low and middle income countries with regards to implementing antimicrobial stewardship. The episode was entitled, A is for Antimicrobial Stewardship. Absolutely. I think the challenges we face in low and middle income countries are fourfold. Um, The first one is the lack of resources. We have limited staffing. In my travels overseas, when I've seen other um, clinical pharmacy um, departments, they have multiple clinical pharmacists. Yet in South Africa, we have one or two. Sometimes hospitals have none. There are also very few infectious disease trained doctors as well. In South Africa and other low and middle income countries, access to literature, especially peer reviewed journals is inaccessible. Unless journals are open access, the majority of healthcare workers cannot afford to pay $35 for a single article. Education and awareness is also important. A huge proportion of medical professionals and the general public are unaware of the problem of antimicrobial resistance. This is something that requires urgent attention. And then lastly is access to newer agents. We don't have access to the new antibiotics that have been developed to treat new multi-drug resistant infections. SAPRA needs to approve them first, and this can take years. Also, once approved, they're most probably going to be very expensive, and us working in state hospitals will not have access to them. In episode 11, Gary Rubinson and I spoke about outpatient antimicrobial stewardship, and reducing the overuse of antibiotics in outpatient settings. Gary had this to say about reducing overuse in outpatient settings. I think there's also often quite a disconnect between what think their patients want from them um, and what the patients and their caregivers actually want. So when when you look at surveys done from antimicrobial prescribers, often they report that their patients demand antibiotics. They come there expecting antibiotics and they're not happy um, unless they leave either with the prescription or the antibiotics themselves. But those same surveys and a number of others when um, the, the, the patients are interviewed actually seem to have the same level of expectation. Um, they report that they're very open to learning more about their infections and the infections that their children have, learning about what the expected natural course is, how long they're going to take better, uh, take, take to get better, how long that's, uh, how that's going to be different with and without antibiotics, um, and 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 trying to find ways to address this disconnect between what prescribers think their patients want and from what their patients actually want, um, I think is an important area to focus. Um, and for me, this this patient education process really starts early on. Um, we, for example, suggested that uh, antenatal care um, for, for, for young people um, about to deliver babies um, should include discussion with, with people around, well, what can they expect um, from their children? How can they expect to experience these infections? When do they need to be worried? When should they expect to be given antibiotics? And that's just the start of the process. Um, we've, we, we, we've, we've spoken about and looked at options for introducing um, this sort of training at preschool and um, junior primary school level so that um, children 
um, learn early on about the benefits and harms of antibiotics and take that home to their parents. And so the parents actually kind of indirectly learn from their children. Um, I certainly welcome the day, and, and, I, and I hope it does come certainly in my um, working lifetime, when prescribers are asked by their patients, why did you give me this antibiotic today? Do I really need it? Can't we just treat my symptoms first and see what happens? And if I'm not getting better, maybe then the antibiotic's the right thing. And the last and most fun of our antibiotics theme was the antibiotics course, where we took a trip down Fairy Tale Lane with Dr. Kim Peaton and Goldilocks. Kim summarized the infections for which there is sufficient evidence to treat for a shorter duration overall. Yeah, definitely. So infectious diseases is becoming a very rapidly evolving and changing um, course of knowledge and data. In the past, we really didn't have uh, the evidence to support a lot of what we were doing. Mm. But in the last 10 years, specifically, knowledge has increased dramatically. And I think the past two years of COVID infection has shown us how quickly you can get information out there with social media um, and the internet. Mm. And so we're really excited as infectious diseases and microbiologist doctors that we're getting real answers to questions that we've had for a very long time where it was a thumb suck and we just didn't know. So some of the infections where we wanted to treat for endless days um, and which now we know that you don't need so long are things like community-acquired pneumonia, even hospital or ventilator-acquired pneumonia. So in the past, community-acquired pneumonia, we typically treat for seven to 10 days. Now you need as little as three to five days, which is really nothing. Hospital-acquired pneumonia, one would sometimes treat for over two weeks. And now it seems that a week of treatment is more than sufficient. Pyelonephritis and complicated urinary tract infections, the dogma always said you need at least 10, more like 14 days of treatment. Don't ever treat less than that. But now we've got trials that show that five or seven days of treatment is more than adequate. Similarly, complicated or post-operative intra-abdominal infections need far shorter courses, like around about a week and not really longer. Gram-negative bacteremia, which always used to strike, or, and still does strike fear into the heart of anyone who's treating it, doesn't always need 14 days of treatment, and most of them only need seven days. Patients with chronic bronchitis, COPD, who have acute exacerbations um, of disease where one is concerned that this may be as a result of an underlying bacterial low respiratory tract infection, may probably only need five days of treatment. Acute bacterial skin and soft tissue infections like cellulitis and abscesses, once the source is removed, if in the cases of an abscess, we know you need hardly any antibiotics, a couple of days, But cellulitis, you probably only need five or six days of treatment. Very excitingly, chronic osteomyelitis, where we would go on and on and on for like up to 90 days of treatment, uh, three months. Now we see that six weeks is actually equal to those 12 weeks of treatment. And that's amazing and a major improvement um, on the mortality and morbidity of patients being treated for that. And then the last one, which I can think of now is um, neutropenic fever, patients where you're not sure exactly what the um, causative organisms are and you want to treat them empirically. 
probably only need 72 hours of treatment once they are afebrile. So most infections and disease systems need far shorter courses of antibiotics and really can be led by the patient's clinical response and not uh, what's written on a piece of paper. And to end off, of course, with our most favorite thing to do on Microbe Mail, which is to bust myths. We have busted blood culture myths on episode two with Dr. Trisha Nana. One myth in particular is related to the fact that blood cultures are supposed to include an anaerobic bottle. So these days, anaerobic bacteremias are uncommon. There are certain scenarios where the inclusion of an anaerobic bottle is, however, recommended. This would include cases where obligate anaerobes are suspected. For example, in necrotizing skin and soft tissue infections, abdominal infections, and certain types of head and neck infections. Also, in severely immunocompromised patients, for example, those with underlying malignancies, and when the source of infection is not apparent, anti-anaerobic bottles should be included. We busted myths related to urinary tract infections on episode 10. One common myth is, if the urine MCNS culture is positive, it must be treated. Dr. Marianne Black debunked this one. So I think we all, uh, you know, usually stand with a lab report in your in your hand. You've got you've got bacteria on the on the culture or pyuria, and you just want to treat. So so definitely not. Urinary tract infection is a clinical diagnosis. It's only confirmed by your laboratory specimen that you that then submit, and not vice versa. So in the absence of symptoms, it is unlikely to be a urinary tract infection. Um, other causes of, of bacteriuria, you know, may, may involve contamination from a lower urethra or the perineum um, when it's not a clean-catch midstream urine. Um, also, our patients with indwelling urinary catheters eventually become colonized. Yeah. Um, also, there's an increased incidence of asymptomatic bacteriuria in healthy, sexually active young females, and which we definitely don't need to treat. Um, bacteria in the lower urinary tract of young females with recurrent urinary tract infections. Um, so so the studies that show that these bacteria may even be protective. So definitely we don't need to treat if it's asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. Um, the scenarios where we do need to treat or we would opt to treat to treat is patients going for a urological procedure where, where there's going to be breaching of the mucosa. Right. Uh, your pregnant patients, because they are more likely to develop a pyelonephritis, which then may end up in a preterm labor. Um, and then your patients that had a kidney transplant in the last month, you may want to consider treatment of these patients. And the last lot of myths we busted were myths surrounding pregnancy and breastfeeding in episode 24 with Shastra Bura and Jared Zamperini. These were really informative. One of these myths is that vaccination is not safe in pregnancy. So this is partly true as it depends on the type of vaccine in question. Mm -hmm. Um, The big concern is live vaccines as these pose the risk of fetal infection. I mean, there have been reports of subclinical infection. Um, use of live vaccines such as yellow fever, um, measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella, it's, it's generally discouraged unless the benefit far outweighs the risk. So this will be in situations where the risk of infection is extremely high. But your inactivated vaccines, so influenza and uh, Tdap, so tetanus, diphtheria, um, inactivated pertussis, 
are actually recommended in pregnancy to prevent maternal and neonatal complications. And then your toxoids like tetanus are generally safe in pregnancy and they can be given if needed. And of course, the COVID vaccines are safe in pregnancy as well. So yeah, vaccinations, inactivated, safe, live vaccines should be avoided. So I think this is very important when it comes to women who want to become pregnant. And this is where preconceptual counseling uh, is vitally important in that vaccinations that need boosters or that were not received during the vaccination rollout as a child need to be done prior to falling pregnant to protect women against the disease process, but also to protect any placental transfer because some of these disease processes can cause permanent blindness, microcephaly, um, and often babies can be born with severe um, anatomical as well as neurodevelopmental challenges. So I think vaccines need to be um, addressed more importantly in patients who want to fall pregnant and that we can try and make sure that they are safe to fall pregnant and then um, make sure that, that there's a healthy pregnancy um, until the baby is delivered. And again, we are at the end of the two whole episodes dedicated to a year of microbe mail. Thanks for being our valuable listener. Thanks for spreading the word. And thanks for all your valuable feedback. Here's to another year of contagious content. Until next time, that's it from me, Vin, your micro messenger. See you again soon with more contagious mail. Yeah, yeah.